Hello and welcome to Anything That Moves, a Manif mobility podcast about the future of people and goods getting around faster, cheaper, safer, and cleaner. I'm your host, Mayor Dardashti. Before we get started, the team at Manif wants to hear from you. If you had feedback or if you are the founder of a company in the mobility space, please reach out to us via the form on our website, www.maniv.com. That's M-A-N-I-V.com and click contact us. Hi, I'm here today with Anil Pariani, currently of Automotive Power, formerly of Tesla, Faraday Future, and a couple other companies that I'm sure you'll tell me about better than I could describe. So why don't you go ahead and give a little bit of your background? Yeah. Hi, Mayor. Thank you for the opportunity here. My name is Anil Pariani. I'm CEO of Automotive Power. We go by AMP. I just have a background in EVs since going back to 1990 as part of my solar and hybrid car teams in college, got a job at Honda worked on battery testing for EVs and hybrids for about seven years. Got a little good at software during the dot-com boom and bust and had a unique skill set in battery management. From there, I ended up finding my way into what I call the mother of electric vehicle technology. And that's a company called AeroVironment, who had quite a couple of spinoffs. One of them was AC Propulsion, which Tesla licensed originally. It really was inspiration to start Tesla. And I ended up joining Tesla in 2007, being the technical lead on the battery management systems for about six years. And from there, held a few executive roles and we started AMP in 2017, about four years ago. So I definitely want to get back to battery management software, but I I think before we do that, the timely topic that we originally connected on was around EV infrastructure. And let's start from square one. I mean, what is the, the EV infrastructure problem? What is it that an EV versus a, uh, a gas engine inherently introduces? And to what extent is that a problem in the vehicle? And to what extent is the problem in infrastructure? All right. So if you look at EVs compared to internal combustion engines, and we should even just look at applications such as scooters and all over the world, why is there so much uh, resistance to electrifying? And if you go back, it comes down to being an infrastructure problem in the U.S., we're a little bit blessed with lots of land. So people have homes with garages. So it's a really great place to start having EVs come out in the marketplace. And we've been doing that well in the US and Europe for a little bit. But majority of the world's population do not have easy access to charging at homes, whether it's condos or apartments. So right now what the infrastructure bill in the US is thinking is, well, let's have public charging. So people, when they're shopping at the mall, or at the grocery store, they can charge for 30 to 45 minutes. And this is all hunky-dory. Well, the reality is we want cars to be plugged in throughout the day for various reasons that we're going to get into. And those are not the right spots to invest money in building infrastructure. And so I'll kind of leave it at that for now. And Okay, so let's take three steps back and then we'll go five steps forward. (laughs) So when we talk about charging, right, there really are fundamentally two kinds of chargers, AC and DC chargers, and they serve very different functions and and address this problem of infrastructure in very different ways. Are we fundamentally talking about DC or fast chargers or AC or slow chargers? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So the way that, let's say, the infrastructure bill is now set up is what I talked about the use case. Let's say, and we want to target everyday working people, we want them to to drive EVs. And we want to do them for various reasons. The first obvious reasons is working class blue collar families tend to live in the most polluted 
and I'm not just talking to U.S., but even in the U.S., in the most polluted areas of the world. So it's important that we get electric vehicles in those highly dense uh, areas, right? But secondly, what do we care about? I have a friend who's in the LAPD, and he was saying, wow, gas is so expensive, and I have to drive all this way to work. I just want low gas prices. And I'm like, Mike, I'm like, you don't want low gas prices. You want low uh, energy costs. And right now, just gas seems to be the best option. So can we solve both of these problems with electric vehicles? The answer is uh, absolutely yes. Now, regarding AC charging and DC charging. So there's other words like level one, level two, which is considered AC, where you plug in, where the charge times tend to be somewhere between eight to, let's say, 16 hours or so from full discharge to full charge. And then there's level three, which is like about an hour charge. Now the cost to bring a level three charger because of the power tends to be five to 10 X more. And then on top of that, the way the U.S. pricing is the cost of energy also tends to be five to 10 X more of delivering fast charge. So if we want to solve low cost charging, which lowers ultimately operating costs, which then consumer ends up paying, we really want to bias the infrastructure towards AC charging within cities. Now, between cities is where we should definitely have DC chargers. Because so you're basically, yeah. Now, if I'm if I'm the average consumer, it's not necessarily intuitive to me um, that it benefits me if I'm pulling into a supermarket and I'm going to be in the supermarket for 45 minutes. What you're saying is, is a little bit counterintuitive to me that yes. I don't want the charger there, that when I walk out of that store, if I plug in at zero, which probably if you're going to the supermarket at 2% battery level, you've got a higher risk threshold than, than the most of us. But you know, you pull up to the supermarket at zero, 45 minutes later, you come out at 100. That sounds like the winning scenario. Yeah, and Maybe I think- Make the case for me why that's actually not what you want, no, why you want to actually I, pull out at 10. Yeah, no, I think that's, that is a good scenario. And actually my mom has a Tesla Model 3. She lives in a condo and there's a supercharged station near her where she goes grocery shopping. So that is a relevant use case. Now- Maybe that's a good spot. Now, where we're talking to having a lot of infrastructure rollout is things like shopping malls and places where not a lot of people are necessarily plugged in at like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. There's so right now, I feel like we need to better target and I'll kind of hit into the problem right now. There's another problem in that the, and this is happening in California, there's things on the net energy metering with solar panels that are. Solutions being proposed by two of the major utilities, Edison and PG&E, that are, have issues where they right now are curtailing solar, where they're basically turning off solar power, and yet they're reimbursing residents who have invested in solar on their rooftops. And so there's new legislation to say, hey, let's cut that back. When in reality is, we have basically free energy available in the U.S. at 2 p.m., every single day. And in fact, some states like Texas, where they have a little bit more of a free market system, pay people to charge their car. Now, imagine how good that would be. But now here's the question. Where are people at usually at two o'clock? They are usually at work and workplace is usually behind the fence. And if we can get the infrastructure bill to emphasize level two AC charging at work, invest in those, then we solve two problems. We solve hey, now people can, there's ultimately lower infrastructure costs to roll out cars. I usually work for eight to nine hours a day. I'm plugged in. And when there's free or we'll call it negative cost electricity at 2 p.m., 
I can charge my car and save the headache that the utilities are dealing with, with excess of solar. So you're basically saying, if I can try and rephrase you and tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, that the benefit overall to the system of accepting slightly slower charging times in these infrastructure bill packages and focusing on level one or level two chargers, more likely level two, at workplaces and not necessarily in shopping malls, means that you can have a system where refueling or re-energizing looks different than the, the hub and spoke model of, or the hub model of gas, you know, uh, what we've gotten used to with the gas economy. But it's still a, a pretty effective solution by charging at work, charging when energy is free or cheap or negative. Yeah, that's right. That is right. And put it, let me put it another way. If we invest in, within the cities on level two AC charging, we can have 10 times the amount of charge stations where people go and reside at 2 p.m., which is where there's excess of solar. But let me just say also it goes beyond that. At 4 p.m., the utilities have another problem in that the sun tends to go down. People turn on the lights. And now they have this, what they call a duck curve, where they have the solars curtailed. And now all of a sudden, there's all these demand costs. So they are cranking on these uh, ultimately fossil fuel-powered generators. And guess what? If the vehicles are plugged in at a place of work, we can now leverage that asset that you buy as a battery pack, and you can actually monetize and by selling electricity back that you've charged for free or made money from. So this is not only a profitable endeavor uh, for electric vehicle owners, but now you can imagine if I'm in a working class society, now I don't have to have any basically, like one third the cost of what they're paying for gasoline fuel. No one's gonna complain about the how expensive gasoline is. And now these we really incentivize normal working people all over the world to invest in electric vehicles. So where has the Biden infrastructure bill put emphasis in terms of EV charging? You mentioned shopping centers. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's in the bill and what's not? Yeah, there's basically a lot of provisions for public charging. And there's zero incentives for behind the fence charging, which is really at workplaces, at factories. So that's really the big uh, pivot that needs to shift in the mindset of the politicians deploying the funds. And the public charging that's in the bill, is this largely uh, municipal or, or state uh, run charging or are these incentives for private businesses to go out and, and install chargers? Yeah, no, the incentives are for private businesses that help get the incentives to roll out charge stations in these public locations. What, what do you make of, you know, I think in Europe, there are a lot more examples of what you might call pure municipal plays, municipalities that are hiring companies like Ubitricity or other like, others like that to just turn lampposts into level two chargers. Is that, first of all, is that a model that you see as successful in Europe? And if it is, is it, is it something you see translating to the US? Yeah. And I can't say I'm an expert on this, but I'd say the goal is to keep uh, the vehicles plugged in at all times. And when we get something called vehicle V2G, when we vehicle to grid, that allows the discharge of the battery back to the grid. As long as we keep them plugged in and we have a lot of vehicles, it solves the world's utility problems of the shift in power demands. The problem with V2G, as I understand it, though, is, you know, imagine if someone were to tell you, it's good for society if you let the government siphon out a little bit of your gas every once in a while. You're not going to notice it. But you just, just let us do it every once in a while. The incentives aren't aligned where the benefit to me as a consumer is pretty small. Even if the benefit to society is huge, how do you compensate or how do you think about 
the fact that, yeah, you, you are using their battery or you're putting a little bit of stress on their battery or you're, you're reaching into their fuel tank in a way that it might feel, it might feel that way to them. How, how do you think about the imbalance between the private incentives towards V2G versus the clear benefits to society? Money talks. And we need to get a system where basically the benefits of operating a vehicle are as much lower than, than gasoline. And the first early adopters of what I'm talking about will actually be probably fleets who have fleets of vehicles and they, where they really, their business is driven based on lowering their operating costs. But ultimately we need to come up with a system to properly financially incentivize because to be honest, most of the world does not care as much about environmental pollution. Their first thing is putting food on their plates for their families. So that's their number one priority. So let's have a proper pricing structure. So there's incentives to keep your vehicles plugged in. So I, I want to go a little bit deeper into battery management software. And I feel like, you know, I don't think we have the ability to track listeners, but this is the point where anyone who we could track just turns off the podcast and goes find something else. But I, I, I really want to talk about battery management software. I know that's a quarter of what you guys do. And, and I think just in general, can you give me just a lay of the land in terms of, you know, to what extent when you look at battery management software in a vehicle, and it can be a, a heavy electric vehicle, lead electric vehicle, to what extent is this problem a soft space? Like how quickly to charge yeah. and discharge a battery? The software side of it. Is this, are we wild west? Are we in a settling market where things are kind of in the middle? Are we, are things mostly solved and we're just like improving at the margins? Like to what extent is there, is, is software an unsolved space in battery management? So someone asked me, what is safer, gasoline or a lithium battery? And if I look at what we you know, did at Tesla, we really put in, and depending on the type of vehicle, somewhere between 5,000 to 7,000 sticks of dynamite in your car. And literally the lithium ion cells have so much energy now, it's actually more volatile than gasoline. And it's hard to understand that because Gasoline to this day has about 10 times the energy density. And typically when you put more energy in a smaller uh, area, it's going to be inherently more volatile. It just so happens that gasoline is not actually easy to ignite. You need to have the right temperature, the right pressure, and you can then ignite it. And that tends to happen in a combustion engine. Whereas lithium batteries, if I throw it, you know, and I don't want anyone to do this, but if you put it in your fireplace, you're going to have like a little bit of fireworks in your home and please don't do that. So inherently going forward as batteries become more energy dense, the safety problem also becomes uh, more apparent. And what we've noticed a lot of OEMs recently, major ones, I'm not going to name them because maybe they are or will be our customers, but I, I can name them. They're usually not <laughs> ours. <laughs> but there are plenty of recalls where companies are spending billions of dollars dealing with predominantly manufacturing issues of the cell, which is inherent whenever you do high volume production on something that's basically like a firecracker. So really the philosophy we had at Tesla was I am going to have a cell, statistically a cell thermal runaway at some point in the fleet and it'll happen so many X times. So what, how do we solve that problem? And the battery management system- Can I just pause you for a second? For those who are yeah. listening at home, thermal runaway is, is the point at which a, a cell spontaneously combusts, basically, right? A cell overheats the point where it's not a common occurrence, but when you see those pictures of a burning Chevy Bolt, 
that's Thermal Runway. Yes. You didn't have to name any companies. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is right. And it really sets the industry back quite a bit, even though gasoline fires happen at a much higher rate than lithium battery fires. It's just the lithium battery fires, uh, when they happen, tend to are a little bit more sexy to report in the news. And sometimes the onset of runaway happens surprisingly when the car is just sitting there. Whereas you don't typically have that with gasoline because it's not easy to ignite. So you're mentioning thermal runaway is if I'm if I'm reading between the lines here, you're saying that that's where there's a lot of room for software improvement in the space, right? You talk about the software side being able to address inherent mechanical flaws that are going to happen in increasingly complex battery manufacturing processes, right? Yep, and this is probably a good time for me to plug in AMP and what go ahead. <laughs> you, were, you were kind enough to join. You get the shot. Yeah, but really um, doing creative things on what we call energy management that allows us to do early warning cell failure detection to detect the risk of thermal runaway before it actually happens. And so we feel what we're doing is really uh, game changing and it's done by controlling certain hardware and software elements in the vehicle. What about the performance side of this? I probably speak to like five or six startups a month that come to me promising 20% better everything on, on a lithium ion cell, you know, better performance, better range, better lifetime. And, and as a third party kind of sitting here and watching from the sidelines, it sure seems like a lot of people are offering the same thing. And I have a hard time believing that if everyone's offering it, either no one's figured this out or everyone's figured it out. To what extent do you think there's, there's meat left on the bone in terms of battery performance and, and battery longevity? from a software perspective? And to what extent are we just toggling between how much you want each of them? They're all trade-offs yeah. and we're just toggling between them. Yeah, there definitely are a lot of trade-offs. I think the trick is to get every single milliamp hour of Coulomb capacity or kilowatt of power to better utilize the battery. And I remember, you know, at Tesla, we had battery companies come to us and they go, okay, well, use the battery like 80% or 90% of its capacity. And how much do you guys use that Tesla? And I said, oh, we use about 101%. So, and so re really there's a lot of art in how do we squeeze out the maximum utility and be on that edge. And there's an edge with the mentioned trade-offs. So first thing is you want to be on the edge of safety performance. Obviously, you could think of it as you're driving down the track, turning the car. And as long as I don't oversteer too much, I'm in control. The second I go a little bit too far, I spin out. And battery management is, let me go to that edge of certain control, which is basically current limits, voltage limits, temperature limits, and knowing where those limits are. And if I do know where those limits are, I can make remarkable increases in uh, what we call runtime, lifetime, and charge times. And it is in the order, like you said, 20% is realized over some more conservative battery management systems. So a couple of years ago, I, I was I, I was very into the topic of battery management. And I, we kind of went on a bender inside the house, inside Money, just talking to anyone in the industry who would talk to us about how they're thinking about battery management software. And we got on the phone a very senior executive from an automotive company that I think everyone listening to this, this show is, as knows, who basically turned to me and said, like, 
don't ever bring me a battery management software startup. This is something that like the same way that with Toyota, the way that they tune their engine, I'm not saying it is or isn't Toyota, it's not a story. The way that Toyota tunes its engines is its signature in a combustion engine. Like the way we manage our batteries is our signature. It's the defining feature of our EVs. Like we will never, over my dead body, will a, a startup in the BMS space ever, ever see my battery, uh, battery data. First of all, has that been your experience? Because clearly yeah. you are a startup in the battery management software yeah. uh, You know, space. definitely there is a not invented here mentality by a lot of the OEMs. And, you know, I come from Tesla. And what I would say is as a startup and I'd say a supplier, we have inherent advantages over the OEMs. So first off, you know, someone asked me, what's your market share? And I said, well, let's say, and say, for example, let's say, let's assume Tesla is not our customer. Our market share is actually bigger than Tesla because we could go to the rest of the world. So that gives us a couple advantages. And you can think about it. There's two advantages. We want to lower down lower capital costs and operating costs, which we talked about longevity, runtime. So as a supplier in the world, I have more buying power, let's say, than Tesla because the rest of the market share is much more. So that helps drive down capital costs. And when we combine that with machine learning, it's really about the amount of data. As a supplier, you will have more data than any one individual OEM. So at the end of the day, the OEMs can say that over my dead body. But I think when their CFO comes in and sees that, wow, this uh, supplier AMP, their hardware costs are lower. And by the way, they're lowering our operating costs. R&D team, we don't care what you say because this is going to be cheaper, more effective on our bottom line. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like the classic OEM tier one relationship. Like this, this should be second nature to OEMs. And yet I, I feel like we're still getting there. Yeah. And then also like the OEMs and te- Tesla's maybe unique. There's no other OEM as vertically integrated as Tesla. The culture of most OEMs is to be tightly working with their suppliers. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. and you're not going to have a big cultural shift. And right now we do have a problem in the world and that there's not enough uh, qualified talents. So I remember this is a weird analogy. And I don't know if you watched like American football, but let's say I remember the Rams, they were a great team and they call themselves the fastest show on turf. And people tried replicating their offense, but they couldn't do it because of their personnel. So even if the OEMs want to be like Tesla, right now there's a challenge on hiring the talent from Tesla and others to the OEMs. And this is where AMP comes in because we are the next Tesla team. Actually, we actually, my career, I said, I started at Honda. We have a lot of people from GM and Daimler and other OEMs, Toyota, that understand both sides of the fence. So we're in a unique situation to be a great partner to the world's OEMs who want to make e-mobility applications. So you brought up uh, classic or traditional OEMs versus Tesla or, you know, new age OEMs. I think it's, this is a, one of the ongoing themes on our podcast. Cause I think it's one of the big themes. That's big questions around mobility and around automotive is for 50 years, there were no, no new automakers. There was no real opportunity to jump into automotive. And in the last decade or two, we've seen quite a few, some pretty spectacularly succeed and some pretty spectacularly fail, but still, I think there's a sense, first of all, that there's opportunity in EV and in AV to, to come and make new OEMs. I'm curious what your take is. I mean, you have a background in, in new OEMs. 
you work closely with traditional automotive, American automotive brands. Where do you, you know, it seems like this is a very polarized fight, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, where do you stand on the, the bullish bearish yeah. for, you know, new OEMs versus old OEMs? So you have to ask yourself, why is all of a sudden there's all these new automakers and in a hundred years, I never saw a new automaker pop up. And the reason why it's actually ridiculously easy to make an electric vehicle compared to a gas car. So now a lot of people can do this and compete. As far as, let me kind of give you a little story, which is kind of interesting. We have some very unique architectures where we combine elements of like battery management and charging into our systems. And one of the traditional European OEMs we spoke to was in the battery management team. And we're like, hey, if we combine some of our charging technology, then we're going to end up driving down costs. And this was the answer. I'm only responsible for the BMS. You're going to have to talk to a separate team, but that's in a separate organization. Just can you give me what I want? And right now, the OEMs tend to really purchase components and not purchase solutions. And this is where the EOEMs being able to step back and not be encumbered by silos have a unique advantage on like the next generation architectures. And I would say though, the, the traditional OEMs, it is now a matter of survival, right? They've seen significant market share, particularly in let's say the passenger vehicle segment taken by Tesla in the US and in Europe. And so now they're reacting and you've announced major announcements of they, them going all electric they will be reliant on suppliers like AMP to accelerate that electrification. Awesome. Well, Anil, thank you so much for your time. Really great to chat. Really appreciate hearing your perspective. Um, big fan of slow chargers. So <laughs> if anyone's listening in Washington, more, more slow chargers in office parks, fewer fast chargers at supermarkets, but I guarantee you no one's listening. And uh, <laughs> thanks so much for your time, Anil. All right, Mayor. Happy to be on. Thank you to producer Naomi Lazarov for making this episode happen. If you liked her work and are willing to put up with mine, please rate and subscribe to Anything That Moves wherever you find your podcasts. Once again, for feedback or to reach out for investment, please go to maniv.com and click contact us. You can also find us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Maniv Mobility. Thanks for listening.